0: Hello and welcome to Dropping at the Movies, I'm Mike and I'm Jose and today we're looking at supposedly the first film noir, that's the reputation yes. that this film has, Stranger on the Third Floor, uh, from 1940. You haven't seen this before right?
1: No and it's so interesting actually, I mean you know, when I was when I was watching it last night, I thought, "Why the hell has Mike chosen this?" Right, the, like the first ten minutes, right? Mm. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I—it's uh, one of those films that you've heard of. You know, the name was familiar to me, but I didn't know why. Mm. Right, like you know, and I am really keenly into uh, film noir. Yeah, it's kind of—it's one of my great loves. Uh, so obviously this film must have registered in some way, but not in a way that I could articulate it's just something that That you've heard mm. right, but but then you know one's heard of so many things So actually I was thinking, you know, why are we watching this? What what has <laughs> what has sparked Mike's interest in this?
0: Well, to be fair, i mentioned it to you before So maybe maybe you remember it from that, but who knows it may have cropped up, you know in your circle somewhere along the line But I certainly mentioned it before mm. and I've been wanting to watch it for a little while because um, I first saw this, I've only seen it once before, but I saw it on BBC Two at like two in the morning. It's just one of the various films that they have on. And I, this was about, I was probably 16 years old. So uh-huh. this is, you know, 15, 16 years ago. I think I was browsing on like CFAX and the thing said, the first film noir. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I watched yeah. this and I thought, oh God, it's, it's a really interesting little movie. What I obviously have forgotten, or what even maybe didn't even register when I watched it the first time, is just how bad the acting is. You know, there are elements of it that you go, "Oh, this is a real B movie, like real, properly cheap B movie." But yes. there are there are things about it. You know, so that first 10 10-15 minutes, as you say, you go, "God, this is really not very good. Why did I want to watch this?" And then yes, that was my. Then it kind of explodes into imagination and and visual expression.
1: Yes, it's fantastic. You know, it becomes something extraordinary. And actually, as you say, it's um, you know, it seems very prosaic. And then actually the stylishness, the lighting, you know, the German expressionist sets, the dream sequence, Peter Lorre is acting. You know, it really transforms it into something else. And um you know there's a there's a um a quite a famous producer at RKO in this period who's called Val Luton, yeah. He did Cat People and The Leopard Man and you know, uh what is it, I Walk with a Zombie, all those films which were made on really, really tiny budgets, right? And which most of their power comes from this oneric dream, fear, you know, and then this, this lighting, right? Uh, and actually it's it's also a precursor to that yeah that kind of you you can see how that kind of thing develops at this particular studio RKO in watching this film um, so and I read a little bit on it kind of yesterday because you know I had one of those uh, light bulb moments right where you think this is crap this is fantastic what is it <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, so I, I, I looked it up and it's very fascinating, really. Like, uh, so what did you find out? Well, I found out that the final screenplay, Uncredited, was written by Nathaniel West. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of one of the great American novelists. And he, I think he did Day of the Locust* and so on. Uh, so that, for me, was interesting. I also found out that the director, Boris Inkster, who I'd never heard of before you know, um, uh, had been one of, uh, the assistants to Sergei Einstein, Eisenstein. Mm-hmm. Right. And actually you could see how a lot of the count cam- the camera setups, the angles kind of really hark back to something like an Ivan, the terrible and so on. Right. There, there is a kind of a connect, a visual connection, uh, to the works of Sergei Eisenstein, which I, you know, uh, just realizing that makes sense. Um, you know on a different level, elisha Cook jr, who is you know the young man who's accused of the murder at, at the beginning right uh I mean you know he's one of the great figures of film noir you know kind of uh, 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 makes you know a completely legendary appearance uh uh you know playing a drum set frenzied drum set in phantom lady um and also there's um of interest, two things really. First, uh the the star, the female star, Margaret Tallichet, right? <laughs> who uh this was a very brief career uh for her as a as an actress because she uh married William Wyler, yeah, the, the great director of Days of Our Lives and so on. So again she was interesting to me because she's one of those figures that you just read about in the background. She's somebody's wife, yeah. yeah? You know. So it was interesting to see her in action, so to speak, right? Uh, and she wasn't very good, but she was much better than the male star,
0: yeah? Yeah, John Maguire.
1: Yeah. And the last person uh, was Charles Halton, uh, who uh, played the Snoopy neighbor, yeah? yes? In the, yeah? Yeah. Who, you know, who is a figure in all of this classic Hollywood cinema and who I find particularly memorable in uh, Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be. Yeah. Right. He's the one who says, uh, you know, uh, Hitler should look like that. And the guy goes, but that is me. <laughs> and he goes, well, then it should be different, right? <laughs> you know, So he's one of those people who, who is instantly recognizable, yeah, across a whole uh, era of cinema. So that was like yeah. kind of a
0: pleasure uh, for me to see. Um, and he probably gives the best performance in this, I'd say. Yeah, I, I think he makes the biggest impression and he has the most he has the, the, the or maybe Peter Laurie but certainly no Peter Laurie definitely Charles I, Holtner his character Mr. Meng has a the whole thing about uh, the main character imagining he wants to kill him or having said he wants to kill him and then imagining it going very badly that people take that seriously uh, you know you kind of go yeah I, I understand why he wanted to kill him I hate this guy too <laughs> you know I felt it <laughs> he's
1: brilliant but Peter Lorre, to me, is a genius, you know, like a uh, film acting. I mean, really, he he just is, you know. Uh, so, and it's very interesting to see him in this because he's got a tiny role, mm. really, you know. Um, so he's got very few scenes. He makes them all count, really. You know, you can tell he's a murderer from the beginning. But actually, you get a whole sense of him, you know. I mean, he's sympathetic as well, right. You know, and he's stylish, instantly memorable. He just does a few gestures, really, Mm. you know, uh, but he conveys so much, so much threat and also so much reasons for the threat. Yeah, you, you know, I mean, he is playing somebody who's escaped from an
0: insane asylum. (laughs) (laughs) Very cheap kind of storytelling, but he imbues it with something a little deeper. Yeah, deeper and
1: also kind of, I don't know, more beautiful, really, because... You know there is kind of like um, a certain beauty to the way that his face captures the light, right? Which is not beauty, you know, in a safe sense. I mean, you know, it's not a, it's not necessarily attractive. Yeah, it's not sexy, but there is a kind of there's something very beautiful in what he does and what you know how he looks and and his voice. Yeah, it kind of you know it conjures up things. Really.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, maybe I'll just say what the plot is, um, roughly speaking, and, you know, I will spoil it, but this is a film that's <laughs> 80 years old now. Um, interestingly, it's only 60 minutes long or so, so it's a film that really doesn't outstay its welcome, and you feel, I mean, to me, the, the length feels so appropriate. Like, it doesn't need to do anything else, it's kind of stripped down. Um, mm. So, uh, John McGuire plays this guy, Michael, who is a reporter, and he's a star witness at this trial of uh, murder. The guy on trial for murder is Elijah Cook Jr. And I mean, it, to be fair, there are things about that that don't actually make sense to me. Like, it, like he gets this raise at the start of twelve dollars a month, which means that he can move in with his wife, or or he's, he's going to marry her. Um, but it's like, but how how is he how is he getting a rise for raise for being a star witness? That's not his job. But you know, <laughs>
1: no, it's not. The, he's not getting the rise for that. It's because he got a byline. Covering the story for the paper. Yeah, but it's
0: like it's his own story, isn't it? Because he's the witness.
1: Well, it's kind of he's a witness. It's sort of silly. No, no, I, no. I think the film makes it clear. He's a witness to the story that he covered and got a byline for. So he's getting a raise because he now is a reporter with a byline. But he also happens to be a witness to
0: the event because he was reporting on it and happened to be there. Mm. So I don't know because the story because the newspaper headline that he has the byline under is reporter is star witness at this trial you know so it doesn't make much sense i mean there's a lot of very heavy clunky expositional dialogue and things being set up early on you know with people basically saying you're my wife and i love you and we're going to move in together and you know so a lot of that is incredibly clunky um and the the kind of crux of this trial is that he saw elisha cook jr over the dead body of the guy who runs his cafe but he didn't actually see him kill him. But what he did, what he does know is that uh, recently, prior to that, he'd heard Elisha Cook Jr. say, he had no money to pay for a meal. And then he said, you wouldn't make me pay if I had a gun in your ribs. Right? And that line is kind of that's pounced upon by the jury, and that is the reason that this guy's going to get convicted. And so, kind of racked by guilt, uh, he goes home that night. Michael goes home that night. And just starts thinking in his head, you know, was that the right thing to do? Wrapped by guilt and also the the concerns of his girlfriend. He says, this is the right thing to do. And he goes into this sort of dream sequence slash imagined vision sort of... He's just worried. And the film goes into his psyche and starts imagining, oh my God, what if this happened to me? What if the next door neighbour, who I don't like very much, died? And then people jumped on things that I'd said about wanting to kill him. You know, this could happen to me. And then it turns out, he has been killed. Oh, my God. And so this whole thing develops of, like, like guilt and, and the imagination nightmare being made real and what's going to happen. It all wraps up incredibly neatly, you know, and in a kind of, uh, again, in a, in a kind of clunky, slightly cheap way. But, like, the centre of that film is really expressive,
1: it's extraordinary. I mean, so let's, you know, all Hollywood films in this be- in this period, in a way, there's two things. You know, one is a kind of a meet-cute, right? Which is what happens at the very beginning with a couple in the diner. And then the ending always has to rhyme in some way. So, you know, those scenes in the diner at the beginning, the the, the very beginning and the very end, are atrocious, <laughs> right? It's like kind of really B-movie stuff. But then what the film does that's so extraordinary is it moves on from there? So once the trial of the of Elisha Cook Jr. happens, then you get this whole sequence of the film, which is really played out in the reporter's head. Yeah. Right. So actually, what's so interesting is that it feels like silent movie acting, right? Hmm. You know, with uh, uh, you know, the actor voicing his fears. Yeah, it's all internal which is so interesting, actually. And also, you know, he is a very bad actor in the opening and closing sequences, but he is so well used, mm. right? It's almost like, you know, by by just giving him to do gestures, it's almost like the camera captures his face in the light, mm. right? As he is responding, you know, to his internal monologue. And that is just fantastic, really, you know, because... I mean, the actor becomes... Uh, I mean, he's such a poor actor, but actually he's so effective in the way that he's deployed in those sequences. Yeah, yeah.
0: in some ways it's kind of simplistic because it is, it is kind of individual gestures that relate to the voiceover of his term monologue. Mm. So it's like he's playing against himself or, or, or you know, yes. with himself. It's like he's, he's, he's got chemistry with his own voiceover. and then, And the way the camera kind of pushes in on him, the way you get these bizarre kind of um, trippy uh, dissolves between various aspects of his imaginings. You know, kind of things moving in and out of focus. Um, I think the set design is wonderful. You know, kind of the, the, um, the empty courtroom and it's just a few people over here. The camera is angled in such a way as to kind of distort the view. The thing about the, uh, the scales of justice are constantly there and they're bathed in shadow when he's hanging the nightmare. Yeah, it's you beautiful. Know. I think it's the set designer who did Citizen Kane.
1: Well, it's... it's I, I don't know how to pronounce the name, but it's Van Nespol Glasse, mm. right? And it's very difficult to credit him with that art direction because, you know, like all major studios, it's the head of section who gets credited with right. right, the art di- direction, right? So it was under his direction, but it could have been, you know, very easily one of dozens of art directors who did the actual job, right? right. <laughs> it's like, you know, kind of... The sound is always credited to Shearer in MGM films. You know, the set design in these 30s films is always credited to every single RKO film with credit, you know, Van Nespo glass. So it's very... It's very difficult to say, say whether he actually did do it, mm. right, or whether he's credited for for doing it because he was the head of the section.
0: Yeah, right? okay. But it's brilliant. It is. It's wonderful, and I was, and that is obviously what I must have you know loved when I saw it years ago. Yeah, you know. So part of
1: the reason why it's considered, you know, one of the well, the earliest. I mean, I hate that the earliest. Someone will always find an earlier one, but you know the the traditional history of film noir in American cinema, you know, the conventional narrative goes that, you know, it starts in 1941 or something with Maltese Falcon, you know, and ends like in, what is it, 57, 58 with Touch of Evil, right? And that's the period of film noir. Uh, And actually, this, first of all, disrupts the narrative, which is, you know, not a very brilliant narrative anyway, really. (laughs) I mean, I do think... um, you know, the the post war films of the late forties do have a very different look, vibe, thematics. Yeah, it's kind of you know, those films that I've been seeing crisscross and, you know, uh, um, all those Bert brute force, you know, all those Bert Lancaster films of the late forties have a really kind of particular post war kind of um, thematic look, energy right anger yeah like the fears are different it's often soldiers coming back with what we would now call post-traumatic stress syndrome um so so there's difference but actually kind of visually yeah and in terms of things like you know uh i mean the world being a dark place you know one of which of dangerous desires you know the uh a world of shadows in which there's no justice, (laughs) you know, or which justice is unreliable. Uh, You know, all of those things are very much in this film. Yeah. I mean, simple things. And I think it's worth underlining things that seem very simple to us today would be erotically charged in a completely different way in 1940, you know, before the pill, before the women's movement. I mean, you know, the Margaret Talichet character going up to her boyfriend's flat mm. and removing the stockings, right? Yeah, that would have a whole different set of connotations. It would evoke more powerfully mm. kind of, you know, certain desires. I mean, you know. Uh I mean we're used now to seeing kind of, you know, people naked and you know, in all kinds of sexual positions, but not at this time, yeah. Uh so so those things I mean, the film is also very much... It has a sexual component, yeah? Mm -hmm. Uh, And it has a social critique. You know, I I think this film, for example, unlike the 1940s films, you really feel Depression-era America, right? You know, you, you... I mean, here is a star reporter with a byline, right? And he can only live in a rooming house, you know, with other people... Yeah, in a really cheap place where you hear noise everywhere in a terrible neighborhood, right? The the woman who is an executive secretary by the looks of it, yeah, has to share a bedroom with, you know, at least three other people or whatever. You see beds arrayed in the same room. Right. So, you know, you could really get a sense of depression era America where things are scarce and people don't have work. And even people with work have very minimal material lives. Yeah. Mm. kind of. You know, they don't have a lot of money. Yeah. Well, the, um,
0: the, the character who's on trial in the first place is like he comes in. I've made five dollars this week. I can pay you. You know, I had some work.
1: Yes. So so I've kind of I I loved all of that. And of course. The dream sequence has to be one of the best dream sequences in the history of American cinema. Oh, you think so? I do think so. There's a big, big words. Yes. Well, you know, I think um, my God, every single image in that is so powerful. Like you know that image of the court reading a newspaper where it says murder, murder, mm-hmm. murder, right? And then the image of blind justice again mm-hmm. in the shadows, right? I mean that is absolutely brilliant, really. Yeah, yeah, they're um,
0: wonderful. It's almost like there are elements of kind of cartoon in there, but in the best way, in the way that like a newspaper cartoon will make something, uh, you know, make make a theme or an idea so obvious through a very, through through a very kind of uh, feels like an overdone image. You know, yeah, there's elements of that yeah. in there, but it's, it's But I mean that in the. It sounds like such an insult, that, but I <laughs> mean it in the best way. It's so expressive, and it really works. Yeah. And you just feel everything this guy's feeling. Through This
1: nightmare, yes. Also, um, I haven't caught. So let's see who the cinematographer is because the lighting is incredibly beautiful. Uh, uh it's, Nicholas
0: uh, Musaraka.
1: Okay, I've never heard of him. Let me just quickly um, look him up.
0: He was born in Italy, uh, he did a lot of Val Luton B movies. Ah, okay, that makes sense. Uh. He's got an awful lot of credits. I mean, I can't, I wouldn't necessarily okay. be able to pick one, one out. But um, Which Val Luton films has he done? Let me just quickly, I can do an, I can do a common cast search on IMDb so I can see what they've collaborated on. Um, okay,
1: well, while you do that, do you mind if I just refill my cup of coffee? Of
0: course, yeah. Okay, so the I've got them up here. According to IMDb, um, the five films in which they are both in the credits are Cat wow. People... Uh, the Seventh Victim, The Curse of the Cat People, Bedlam, and The Ghost Ship.
1: Okay, fantastic. Yeah,
0: so it makes sense,
1: yeah, this kind of connection to Val Luton's B-unit production, you know, that has become for, famous for having a particular style, even though, you know, it was different directors kind of contributed to it. Mm. You know, Mark Robson, Jacques Tourneur is the most famous of them. He did the most famous ones. But, you know, if they share the cinematographer then actually this film then also connects to all of that, which is also noir, yeah? Uh, And actually, this film is so interesting because it kind of touches on all of these interconnecting genres that often have a film noir style or look, yeah? So the crime film, the detective film, the horror film, yeah? Through the figure of of Peter Lorre.
0: Yeah, well, I think what's... When you were saying earlier this thing about oh the first film noir, like you know it, it's a bit of a it's a contentious term. It's not that useful. The thing is that there is obviously um, there is obviously something you can really identify as noir, but there are um, kind of grey areas and you know undefined yeah. sort of boundary areas to genres. So this has elements that you would recognise, but not necessarily yeah. every element. Yeah. It's like it's not just it's not just you either are a film noir or you aren't. You know, so exactly. it's kind of so it, it is a bit of a of a it's so people like to say probably, oh, it's the first film noir, you know, but it's yeah. just a film that has a lot of elements that you'd come to recognise in film noir, generally yeah. speaking.
1: I'm not interested in policing boundaries anyway. No. I mean, I think what, it, you know, what interests me about this film is the way that it uses <clears throat> all those stylistic flourishes, you know, and thematics, actually, and ways of telling a story that we associate with noir, you know, to actually communicate something quite extraordinary. That which the film hangs on, it's a B-movie. In many ways, it has a very trite crime story, Mm -hmm. you know, that these studios, the B-sections of these studios would churn out on a weekly basis, practically, right? So I think what's extraordinary is how the, you know, elements that we associate with noir that come from German Expressionism, yeah that here also actually have a connection to eisenstein's style of filmmaking you know how they're deployed to really create something quite extraordinary really which has to do with fear mm. right and and actually it has to do with fear with the impossibility of desire with the justice you with the with a with the culture you live in being unjust right with cops not caring and justice actually being absent or enshadowed or yeah and actually the fears that people live through as a result of that right that's conveyed very very vividly in the film i think
0: yeah and it really really struck me again this is something that i've obviously completely forgotten from the first time i saw it or that never struck me the first time but what struck me so much this time is um the way that the injustice or, or the the kind of the, yeah injustice injustice and unprofessionalism of the justice system here is again kind of a cartoon it's very exaggerated to the point where i was laughing and i think it's maybe it's not intended to be a joke or funny but like i don't think i was laughing at the film i was kind of with it you know so the thing about the judge in the trial falling asleep yeah. the lawyer needing to get his attention the juror falls asleep and then they have to wake up the judge to get the juror's attention you know that's like it's a comic setup right and and it happens again later on. And all, the, the the cop um, the for the second murder, the murder of Mister Meng, um, you know, the journalist kind of calls the police and gets their attention. And he says, well, this, this, and this. And the police and the police officer goes, yeah, yeah, I guess that's a lead. Um, you know, maybe we'll follow up. And he does like a wink, like he finds it a joke. You know, so and that's something that yes. that I don't think I've really seen elsewhere. Like that to treat it as a joke rather than something that's dramatic and and uh unjust to be a joke and unjust feels more unjust you know yes like they know how seriously they're taking this
1: yes i mean it's like you say it's done for laughs but actually it ends up being a very coruscating critique yeah of the american justice system yeah and actually you know also not you get the feeling from the film that you know, these cops have a lot to do with and they don't care. And it's just criminals anyway, you know, and who cares if the wrong man gets sent to the chair? It happens all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which actually is what we know, but which we never see or we rarely see in American cinema, particularly of this period.
0: Yeah. And and really, like, the, the journalist's nightmare is about going, oh, my God, it could happen to me. It's like that kind of yeah, love, exactly. like that privilege thing of going, oh, it's fine, it happens to other people, and then going, oh my god, what if yeah. I'm like other people and I'm part of the exactly. same system, you know? Yeah, exactly. And that's the There's entire, a lovely
1: replay. There's a lovely replay of that because the girlfriend berates him for maybe you know getting the wrong person sentenced, yes. right? And he's going to the chair, you know, and he says, oh, "What can I do about it? Blah blah blah. So it's almost you know, it's not my yeah." And then, of course, it happens to him. That's the thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. you know? And actually, I, th- I do think that that doubling up of that makes it quite powerful. It could happen to anybody. Right. Like, yeah. It happens to a journalist with a byline, like, you know, uh, uh, wrongly, you know, wrongly accused. Yeah. Maybe wrongly sentenced and nobody will care. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's <laughs> a feeling of
0: like once you're in the dock, you are going to go to prison and be executed. Probably. Like that's just the way it is. And the thing about and it all comes from that um, from that thing of that when he tells the court in the in the the, the trial when he tells the court, um, oh, he said as a joke, oh, I could kill you, basically. Um, mm-hmm. Like that becomes the line that's jumped on, and and it's his, as he said, it's his girlfriend who says, but that's that's what they're going to jump on, and you didn't have to tell them that. He's like, well, what could I do? It happened. And you kind of go, I mean, you're right, but to not... It's it's in going into the dream sequence that he realises actually what that means, the weight of what he's done. And even though it is a case yeah. of telling the truth, the system is going to make everything like it's going to ruin everything.
1: Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Peter Lorre because, <clears throat> you know, I do think um, he's 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 extraordinary. I mean, I love him in almost everything, but he is particularly well deployed in this. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you know, but he became famous playing a child murderer in M. I don't know if you've ever seen I've M. never seen him, but I
0: know that's what made him famous.
1: Yeah. It's an extraordinary film. It's like one of the great masterpieces of the cinema. You know, And then it's interesting because he did have a kind of a starring career. Yeah. So, you know, he appeared in a couple of Hitchcock films in England.
0: I think, was it The Man Who Knew Too
1: Much? Uh, I forget now.
0: Yes, it was, 1934.
1: But this is um, a small part in which he gets star billing, right? So obviously the film is publicized on his name, but actually which he only has a few scenes. And I do think that... You know, first of all, for anybody who's seen M, his presence at the beginning just brings up that you know, you know, if he's not a child molester, he's something. This he's something else wrong, right? Like, <laughs> in this film, yeah, uh, and and then the way that he's shot. I mean, you know, there are scenes in the stairs, right, where you know, so he is the stranger at the top of the stairs, and you know, there are scenes where the hero sees him, and the camera just goes into these extraordinary huge close ups of his face, right? Uh, you know, which are very powerful, very striking. Yeah. So it's not just his performance. Um, you know, the camera is always putting attention on him through the lighting and so on. Yeah. But he makes an incredibly vivid impression with very few gestures, like, you know. Mm. Uh uh and 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 playing with and to the camera. I think it's a it's really You know, to me, he's one of the great things in this movie, really. Like, you know, the the dream sequence, the way the voiceover falls on the hero's face, the interaction with that, and the way that it's lit, and Peter Lorre are absolutely, yeah, incredible moments.
0: Yeah, and as you say, that sense of threat when uh, when he's kind of made real, and he's um, with the girlfriend at the end, and she has caught him, identified and doesn't want to let him go but then somebody sort of gradually starts to realize that she is in trouble you know because he starts to see through her lie and it it does get quite um it does get quite scary for her and it's his presence creepy yeah
1: yeah i mean there's a creepiness that he brings right because on the one hand he's very short and he's very slight right so that he can evoke a physical threat that's so powerful, right? Mm. You know, it's really quite something. And uh, and actually, it has a lot to do with, you know, evoking a kind of creepiness, yeah? You know, that he's capable of going into, you know, sordid directions that, you know, ordinary people can't dream up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that he might have done yesterday to someone else, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <sighs> yeah and it's his
0: voice as well you know you can't underestimate yes. oh i <laughs> Peter yes. Dory that's his voice yeah.
1: <laughs> but he also makes him sympathetic in some ways right a so the low way yeah. of speaking you know the thing about the dog the moment with the dog mm-hmm. yeah it is kind of I think a, a, a truly extraordinary performance and an incredibly vivid presence you know that's that's very strikingly filmed yeah it's
0: and it's in the way he's written as well, you know, in a minor. It's it's in the it's in the I'm not going back there, you know. And again, yeah. he he makes he makes as much of it as there is to make of it. But it's in there, you know. The, the idea of um, obviously this guy's a murderer, and you know that, and you don't you, you can only have sort of limited sympathy for him, I suppose. Or the film only gives you space for so much sympathy for him. But you understand sort of you understand the pain. You know, he has a kind of pain in him. You understand why he doesn't want to go back to where he's been. And so when he dies at the end, um, you kind of feel like that is probably the best outcome for this guy.
1: For sure, <laughs> right? And also he says he doesn't want to go back exactly. you know, to the asylum. Um, I also, you know, I really disliked um, the coda, the beginning and the end, yeah, in the diner. Mm-hmm. But, but it, it also evokes very interesting things. As I said, there is a whole critique of Depression America involved in that, right? So at the end, you know, they have this exchange of dialogue where it says, well, basically, we won't be eating here anymore because we're getting married, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, we'll, you know, my wife will be some cheesy dialogue about the <laughs> wife now cooking his meals. But you also get a sense, actually, that they have been living in places that have no cooking facilities, that they don't have a stove, that they're forced to eat out you know in cheap really cheap places that probably cumulatively add to a very expensive way of eating because they can't afford a place that has cooking facilities right Mm -hmm. so the film is also full of little suggestions like that you know that are cumulative though obviously nothing compares you know to that extraordinary dream sequence yeah yeah which actually I find it very difficult to talk about now because it, it almost feels like something you should look at over and over again and study somehow. It's so rich. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of um, evocative. I, I really do think, you know, certainly I've only seen this film once, but certainly on a first viewing, I do think it is one of the great dream sequences that I've ever seen,
0: actually. I'm glad you think so. I mean, it's interesting because when I was watching it, I was, because I basically remembered the dream sequence, I mean, not not image for image, but I remembered that that's what it was, and it was there. Um, I was noticing all the things that were below my expectations from what I'd remembered of how good this film was. Ah. The acting and the writing and being clunky and so on and so forth. So I was going, oh, God, maybe Jose ain't going to like this. You know, because I'm not liking it all that much in some ways. Ah. You know, which, like I say, then he got back to the dream teams and I thought, oh, this is good. Um, But, you know, obviously, like, that being that coming to that dream sequence new. I mean, I don't think I told you anything about this film, really, When I, whenever I've mentioned it to you. So to come into it so blind.
1: I went into it completely blind. Uh, and as I said, my first thought is, why the hell has Mike chosen to see this? Because, you know, the first five, ten minutes, it really does look like a generic B-movie. Actually, I thought, you know, uh, the whole courtroom scene, I did think oh my God, this is someone who has no visual sense. <laughs> you know, the kind of the compositions were so ordinary and, you know, the, the, I mean, there was nothing intriguing or expressive about the camera placement, actually, you know, in all of those. And then you go into his internal monologue and then the dream sequence and the film becomes something at another level altogether. It's completely extraordinary.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, one final thing for me is, did you smile... When um, Elijah Cook Jr. turned out to be the cabbie at the end, um, I you know I, it was it was so cheesy, and that's part of what I was saying. Oh, it wraps up so neatly, but actually, I couldn't stop myself from smiling that he was okay and so happy yes. and
1: stuff. I I love him, you know. So um, he also appears in the Maltese Falcon, in you know one of you know he he plays. Uh, uh, I suppose, a, a queer character, a gay character, yeah? Uh, so that is that is made fun of, yeah? And he's got kind of this nervous, edgy, you know, kind of punky quality, you know, that is really deployed throughout kind of, um, you know, well, all of cinema, particularly film noir in the 40s. So, um, but yes, I, I didn't laugh. But that is a very cheesy moment. <laughs> yeah, But it's what I would have expected yeah. of this type of film, yeah? So that's not what distinguishes this film. No, no, because no. Because actually you expect any B film to have had cheesy moments like that. You know, what, what distinguishes this one is, you know, that internal monologue, the dream sequence, the Peter Loris performance, yeah and and actually what that evokes, and what that says yeah
0: mm mm-hmm. good I'm glad I've watched it again i'm say i'm glad I've watched it again because that's been sixteen years ago, and I'll watch this a second time, you know if one of these days I'll get round to it, and um it's sort of you know in all the in all the ways it needs to it stands up to what I remembered of loving about it the first time when I watched it on a small t v at the end of a dark room at two in the morning, you know highly
1: recommended whether it's the first film noir or not who cares you know it's an early one and it does extraordinary things you know with some moments that really will remain indelible Uh, so uh, we highly recommend it Mm -hmm. Uh, and thank you very much for listening Uh, we are eavesdropping at the
0: movies and we are on apple podcasts soundcloud spotify and youtube listen to us on social media we're on facebook and twitter And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.